online. So, promoting rules and norms, addressing the climate crisis, building on our STEM workforce. These are the three areas of priority for this council that will guide our work today. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hello, Downlink listeners. That was U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris this week as she convened the first National Space Council meeting of the Biden administration. And just like she said, Wednesday's meeting had three agenda items, and they were STEM education to create the future space-based workforce. The second was about using space-based assets and the data they produce to combat climate change. And third, which is what this episode is focused on, was space-based security, which at present has precious few rules or norms governing behavior. Because there are few rules or norms, nations with missile technology, and the U.S. is in this crowd, have conducted kinetic ground-to-space anti-satellite munitions tests. These tests have destroyed objects in orbit, and they have created an immense amount of debris. That debris, metal pieces, shards, not only travel at roughly 25,000 kilometers an hour, but can stay up there for decades, even centuries, especially in the higher orbits. Last month, Russia conducted another anti-satellite test, which not only forced the crew of the International Space Station to take cover on the day of the test, this week the astronauts had to postpone replacing a faulty antenna because of the threat of being hit by orbital debris that ASAT test created. I don't believe it's risky to say there is a wide general international consensus that rules and norms of space behavior are needed. What's new that came out of the National Space Council meeting is the administration identifying rules and norms of space behavior as a whole of government priority and a top Defense Department official called for a moratorium on ASAT testing. To understand the meeting's outcomes and to get an idea of the current state of the space operating environment, I spoke with Victoria Sampson from the Secure World Foundation. Hey, Victoria. It's great to have you on the downlink. Hey, Laura. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Could you take a moment and introduce yourself to the audience and explain what you and your organization do? Sure. Um, well, my name is Victoria Sampson, and I'm the Washington Office Director of the Secure World Foundation. The Secure World Foundation is a private organization that focuses on the long-term sustainable use of outer space. We push for best practices and norms of behavior to make sure that space is accessible to and usable for all over the long term. Um, so my particular interest is on the security side of the conversation. Um, we put out a global counter space threat assessment that I'm a co-editor of, and we do a lot of work in multilateral fora promoting space security conversations. With the most launches ever this year, with the amount of, of treasure being invested both publicly and privately, and then there's Russia's ASAT test, we're either at or near an inflection point. And can you explain that? Like, what's the state of near-Earth space, of the operating environment? Sure. Well, I can give it a try. I mean, 
what I see really happening here are two trends and they're almost working at cross purposes with each other. Uh, the first trend is that we're seeing a rise in the number of actors and objects in orbit. And you know, a lot of this is you know, due to more countries having access to space, um, but also let's be honest, it's the rise of the mega constellations that we're seeing. Right now, there are roughly about 5,000 active satellites in operation around Earth. But of those, around 1850, hard to say to keep launching more, but around 1850 or so are from one entity. It's not a country, it's a company. It's SpaceX and it's, it's their Starlink constellation. Um, they're always launching more. Um, so, I mean, that, that's huge because you, know, you think about it, over a third of the active satellites are um, owned and operated by an entity that's not a nation state. Um, and we're starting to see that happen even more and more. Uh, if you look at the amount of satellites that the mega constellation operators are planning, hoping, praying that they'll be able to launch, that will actually make the situation even more skewed towards a commercially dominant actor in, in space. Um, it's hard to tell, you know, roughly how many are going to be up there. Earlier this year, we had added it up and had maybe 120,000 satellites proposed by the end of this decade. But you know, about a month or so ago, a bunch of companies put in request with the FCC for Spectrum, and that was for 38,000 more satellites. And then internationally, other countries are starting to look at their own, you know, maybe they want to develop their own mega constellations. And, you know, there's a story that Rwanda was thinking of a constellation of 350,000 satellites. Clearly, that's not going to happen. But, you know, and some of it is a grab for Spectrum or trying, you know, save a space just in case later on. But, you know, a significant portion of the, well, I wouldn't say significant, let's say a percentage, and it may even be a small percentage, but it would still be a significant number of satellites will be launched. And so when you're looking at that, we're looking at possibly tens of thousands of satellites being launched in low Earth orbit. And that's going to change things tremendously. It's going to change the governance of space in a way I don't think we've truly recognized. Historically, when we wanted to talk about space, we talked about it at the multilateral level, the nation states, you know, the United Nations. Um, that's not really something, you know, these companies do not have representation at the United Nations. So that's going to change things. And it's going to change, you know, I think how we have operated so far, right? for example, right now, if you want to put a satellite up at geostationary orbit, you have to get a slot, an orbital slot from the National Telecommunications Union or the ITU. But if you can get up to LEO, frankly, as long as you aren't going to you know, run in anyone or if you can't broadcast over anyone, it's there. You know, there's no one moderating slots in LEOs. And so I think it's going to be interesting because you, know, you could potentially have thousands of satellites in one orbit, which means for all intents and purposes, you, know, you may not have necessarily planted the flag, so to speak, there, but that is your orbit. Uh, the Outer Space Treaty, Article 2, talks about non-appropriation of space. You know, but have you done that? If you've you know, got tens of thousands or thousands of your own satellites in one orbit. Um, and then just and so that could cause concerns internationally that certain countries are taking up space quite literally at the expense of others. And another concern, just moving that aside, um, is that you may see some sort of carrying capacity reach for these orbital shells. You know, we used to work under the assumption that space is big, it is, but these orbits, you know, have some limited limiting characteristics to them. You know, there's certain orbits that are good for certain capabilities. And there may be a certain point where you have enough satellites in an orbit where you, you reach that carrying capacity in terms of there's going to be interference, whether it's physical or radio frequency. And I don't think anyone's really done a lot of research to see what that might be. Um, that's, that's something we've been starting to think about as well. So we're seeing some real changes in that. And um, it's a disruption to how the space domain is working. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm anti 
commercial, anti-mega constellations, you know, but I think it does emphasize that we need to think our approaches and say, okay, do they still make sense? Or does the governance need to evolve for this? That's one major trend that I'm seeing for you know near Earth space. The other one is that uh, we're starting to see an increased interest in what we call counter space capabilities, whether it's anti-satellite weapon or something that gets up into orbit and gets close, you know, co- what we call the cor- orbital. Um, you're looking at you know, jamming, looking at directed energy, lasers, um, cyber, absolutely. So um, my organization, Secure Wolf Foundation, is that, uh, puts out a counter space threat assessment, which I'm the co-editor of. And so we go into this, we look into this, we, we see, okay, what do we know based on unclassified information for capabilities and efforts and programs around the world? And we look at the United States, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, India, Japan. A few years ago, we added France. And this year, I think we're going to have to add the UK, Australia, and Germany. So what we're seeing is there are, by some of the major actors, let's say China, Russia, United States, there's a real interest in developing these capabilities. There are programs with active research and development. Right now, we have not seen any counter space capabilities being used that create debris in a um, conflict setting. Uh, what we see being used in conflict settings are things that don't create debris. So that's things like jamming, you know, cyber attacks, that sort of thing. They're perceived as being more usable. But I mean, the concern I, that I have is that we're seeing this trend towards counter space interest at a certain point, you know, countries are going to want to start testing or start maybe even possibly design to use them. And we, we've seen this, you know, the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War did a lot of um, anti-satellite tests that created significant amounts of debris. And then we stopped when the Cold War ended or shortly before. And then it, it picked up again. Um, China had anti-satellite tests in 2007 that created a lot of debris at an orbit of about 3,000 pieces, a lot of which are still around. 3,000 trackable pieces, I should say. Um, there's probably thousands of uh, pieces of debris that were created that we just don't know about because they're too small to see. Um, India in 2019. And, and then most recently, Russia had an anti-satellite test just a couple weeks ago at about 480 kilometers and created about 1,500 pieces of trackable debris. And you know, in terms of debris that's untrackable, but still significant to pose a danger to either other satellites or humans on whatever space station you're worried about, and there could be hundreds of thousands more pieces of debris. It's hard to say. So I think that's definitely concerning because right now there's nothing really legally preventing anyone from doing these sort of anti-satellite tests that creates debris up in space. The Outer Space Treaty prevents signatories from putting weapons of mass destruction, you know, nuke, chem, bio, that sort of thing, in space or on the moon. But it doesn't actually talk about anything kinetic, you know, left open to interpretation. So, and that's why actually there, there were there were possibilities for having these tests during the Cold War and more recently. Um, so the question is, okay, well, why don't you just have a treaty? I mean, not, I don't want to bore you on stupid by going into arcane legal discussions, but I will say when it comes to space, there are really four major treaties and the most recent one was signed in the mid seventies. It's just, it's, um, um, so there's been an increased interest and this is a relatively recent um, happening about having some sort of ban or some sort of unilateral test moratorium of debris-causing anti-satellite tests. And I think Russia's most recent test probably was an underlining um, reminder to a lot of countries and actors around the world. Um, you know, if someone's creating uncontrollable trash on orbit, guess what? That's not a stable, predictable domain. That's one where you're going to have to have close attention. You're going to have to have 
very good spatial awareness, and you're going to have to probably spend time, money, and fuel moving your satellites around so you don't get hit. You know, as your main focus is on space sustainability, which is a no kidding defense um, space domain issue and an economic issue. What were some of the key takeaways from the National Space Council meeting? I mean, what for you really stood out? Well, I mean, I think for me, what was really interesting were um, was was the emphasis on norms of behavior and identifying rules, of the, you know, for actions in orbit. Um, and this was not just something that was stated as a goal by um, by Harris, but it was something that was brought up by all the agency representatives, which was you know kind of surprising. I'm used to hearing State Department talk about it. Obviously, I'm used to hearing DOD talk about it. In fact, the Secretary of Defense, Austin, released a memo in, in July of this year calling with tenets of responsible behavior in space, So, you know, that, that, which is fantastic. But in, even to a certain extent, used to having represent, representatives from commerce talk about it. But, you know, you had transportation talk about it. You had the National Security Advisor talk about it. You know, it seems like there's a whole government emphasis on how this is something that's important and that the U.S. needs to be a leader in. And for me, that was really encouraging. Uh, Secure World Foundation has been pushing for norms of behavior and the idea that, you know, it is to everyone's benefit to put up these guardrails to make sure that, you know, space is usable for all. Um, and there has not always been widespread acceptance. You know, there have been some that fear that any kind of limitation of behavior, and this is probably from a few years ago, but there'd be concerns that, you know, it would reduce U.S. freedom of action, must have complete freedom of action at all times in space. And, you know, that isn't helpful because if we want a freedom of action for ourselves, guess what? Other actors are going to want it for themselves. And that is not always to our benefit from whether you're looking at national security considerations, commercial considerations, civil space work or anything like that. So I think definitely there is a full court press, so to speak, on um, norms of behavior, which was really encouraging for me. And then this is probably not a surprise, but you know, just to hear again and again and again, the emphasis on how irresponsible Russia's anti-satellite test was from a lot of the speakers. I think that kind of ties in to why these norms are so important. You know, the fact that the vice president started the meeting you know, with a discussion on, quote, how we modernize the norms and rules that govern space. That's certainly good, but also did it really move the ball forward? Not just what she said, but I mean, like the discussion. I mean, do we actually have taskings? Do we actually have, you know, something that we're, we're, we're working towards? Um, I mean, I don't think anything like that, any kind of taskings or specific, here is the goal that we want to end up at, came out of the meeting. But I think that's okay. I mean, it was the first National Space Council meeting of this administration. You know, emphasizing again, we're doing it still in the middle of a pandemic. You know, things are a little tough. Um, but for me, it really, the first meeting is kind of setting out the infrastructure, the, the superstructure of how this administration wants to move ahead and what sort of principles and guidelines they want to see happening and, you know, kind of setting that up. And I would expect in the fall, in the coming months, you know, we'd see more specific taskings coming out of it. I think we're seeing, you know, there's an interest in the United States, um, in the security establishment and possibly having some sort of test ban. Um, there's interest internationally and possibly having some sort of test ban. And with this call for action um, at the National Space Council here, a meeting, I think we have a strong possibility for having some forward momentum and actually 
getting something accomplished that could actually be helpful and help improve the security and stability of the space domain. So I'm cautiously optimistic. Thank you so much for your time, Victoria. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on here, Laura. That optimism, which is really what's striking about what Victoria just said, will become even clearer in my next interview with Daniel Dumbacher, the executive director of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. He was on the downlink previously, the week of Russia's ASAT test. Hi, Dan. Thanks so much for coming back on the downlink. Hello, Laura. Glad to be here. You know, not everybody in the audience has been listening from the beginning of this podcast. So could you just take a second and explain um, what it is that you do and who you represent? I'm uh, Dan Dumbacher, the executive director for the world's largest aerospace professional society, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, or as we call it, AIAA. You watched the meeting this week of the inaugural Biden uh, National Space Council. What for you was your main takeaway? I mean, how how does commercial space actually see the meeting? Well, my main takeaway, first of all, was it's fantastic to see the continuation of the National Space Council and the whole of government approach. We've been advocating that throughout the transition, um, and we wanted to see this in place and and getting this first meeting going and. And the three priorities that um, Vice President Harris laid out on on STEM, on climate crisis, and on the STEM workforce climate crisis, and and helping get the international behavioral norms in place are all uh, the key elements that we believe are important as well. Were you satisfied with the policy approach to addressing threats such as space debris, space junk, ASAT tests to space-based assets? I asked because I didn't hear much about space traffic management leadership, funding, or, or real hardcore you know, coordination, let alone the legislation that I know is quite you know, near and dear to you that would cover SPD3. It did, I mean, the meeting did touch upon it, but was that really enough? Well, certainly it's an important, very important first step. The national leadership needs to make their uh, priorities known and and the Space Council meeting has done that. I believe it's gonna add some additional emphasis to the discussion on implementing SPD3. Uh, So that's all important. Now that we have a clear statement that says the transitions from the previous administration to this one, uh, gives uh, the work of getting SPD3 into legislation and appropriations uh, that much more horsepower. And, and we appreciate the leadership that the Space Council has provided on that front. Also, I know your organization is deeply committed to STEM education. The mere fact that the Vice Chief of Space Operations, General David Thompson, spoke during the meeting's education agenda, not, not the defense side of the agenda, but the education side of the agenda, and that he and the vice president agreed that STEM education is vital to the nation's economy as well as defense. I mean, that is a positive takeaway. Again, was it enough or is this just the beginning? You know, how do you see that exchange? Well, again, we're getting the, the national leadership across the board making the statement on how important uh, the workforce is and developing the STEM workforce And that top-level leadership helps set the stage and the priorities for everything that 
that works uh, to support those priorities. And, and given those kinds of statements from the vice chief and the vice president and others, just helps add momentum and urgency to what we're trying to do. There are lots of things to go work on. We have lots of activities ahead of us, lots of effort ahead of us. But when you have that national leadership, uh, it gives it gives people the right urgency and helps make everyone aware that we need to that uh, how important this is and we need to get with it. And and so this is an important step as well. And lastly, you know, from the perspective of your organization, what do you want the National Space Council to accomplish during this administration? Seeing that this is just the beginning, this is just their first meeting. Well, I think there there are lots of challenges ahead of us. And in getting the first meeting in place, first of all, just demonstrating the the whole of government approach by adding the additional membership uh, to the council, I think is extremely important when when you look at the climate crisis priority that the vice president laid out. We've talked about the STEM. Those three, the, the three priorities that have been laid out are three key priorities that we are working on. And we look forward to future more detailed efforts on each of those priorities. This meeting was a good first step and helps sets, sets the stage for the next steps. We got to do this one step at a time. We want to take the steps as quickly as we can. So now we have step one and it's time to get to steps two and beyond quicker. Thank you so much for your time, Dan. My pleasure, Laura. Always happy to do it. Now, despite the upbeat and forward-looking nature of the National Space Council meeting, the Department of Defense seemed to forget about space this week when it issued its Global Posture Review, a report, if you will. A senior Pentagon official told reporters on Monday that the document didn't include space or cyber because the review was looking at the U.S. Force's international footprint, And that has raised eyebrows as both space and cyber make that international footprint and the projection of power internationally possible. Anyhow, here is my conversation with Sarah Monero to unpack the policy implications of the review and the National Space Council meeting. Hey, Sarah, thanks for coming back on the downlink. Oh, thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. As you've been on the show before, some of the audience will know who you are, but for those of you who are new, I'm going to ask Sarah, could you please introduce yourself and say uh, what you do? Yeah. So my name is Sarah Monero. I am a nerd, but more specifically, I am a space missile defense and nuclear enterprise nerd. Uh, I've been in the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, and most recently up on the Hill where I did legislative oversight of our strategic forces for the Department of Defense, including the Space Force, Missile Defense Agency, and our nuclear enterprise. And now I am a adjunct defense fellow at the Center for New American Security. So Sarah, there's been a lot that's been going on this week. We had the global defense posture come out. We had the first space council under the Biden administration actually convene. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd have to say that there were, you know, some pretty serious developments in the space arena. First, the fact that space was actually missing from the global posture review. And that's with a branch of the military that actually focuses on it. 
I'm not quite sure what to make of it. And the answers the DOD spokesperson gave for it weren't all that illuminating, to be honest. So what do you make of it? Yeah, I think that one, the general reaction to the global posture review is very kind of tepid in general, regardless of the functional areas and kind of the press points that have been coming out. A lot of people are saying that nobody should have expected significant change this early in the administration. Nobody wanted to get out in front of uh, what will be the final kind of national security strategy and the waterfall of policy documents that implement that. Nonetheless, I think that this was a real opportunity that was missed by the Department of Defense because this would have been the first global posture review that would have acknowledged the existence of the United States Space Command as a geographic combatant command. So as you recall, Space Command was stood up originally as a functional combatant command and then disestablished. And then when Congress reestablished it, or at least authorized the establishment of it, the Department of Defense actually chose to reestablish it as a geographic combatant command. And so what I would have expected to have seen, um, either in the press posturing for this or in the actual document itself, was that recognition that as a geographic combatant command, there are troops from all across the services, most notably from the Space Force, but also the Army and the Navy, that contribute very tangibly to the mission of the United States Space Command, and that Space Command contributes to the terrestrial operations of all of the other global posture review kind of COCOMs that were kind of discussed. And so I think that was an opportunity that was missed by the department. Um, I do think that space will be addressed in the other policy documents that the spokesperson did talk about. The derivation of a lot of these reports, quite frankly, come from Congress. And, uh, you know, there's a a nuclear posture review and uh, a missile defense review and, and usually a space posture review as well. And so we will expect those documents to be coming down the pike as the administration continues on. Uh, But I think that this was an unfortunate misstep in a pretty early document for the Department of Defense and the administration. Let me just uh, follow on with that, because the other thing that was missing from the document was also cyber. And the reason I mentioned cyber is because cyber really does walk in lockstep with space. We can't have space operations without computers, and these computers are linked up to, well, everything else. What do you think about the, the fact that cyber also wasn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the discussions that I had previously and a lot of the things that I had said previously for space may apply to cyber uh, in this context, which is I'm, I'm sure that there will be. Uh, and cyber is not only in cyber defense is not only the purview of the Department of Defense, but is also uh, very much a whole of government enterprise and undertaking. I would expect that we would see several strategic documents coming out from either the NSC and or the Department of Defense and Department of State addressing the priorities for cyber in the context of U.S. national power. Again, since there is apparently not going to be a public version of the Global Posture Review, unclear whether cyber was mentioned at all. It clearly was not a focal point for the Global Posture Review, as everybody has kind of pointed out. It's almost hard to conceptualize of having a document like this not recognize those kinds of fundamental strategic domains. 
that have been acknowledged as being absolutely necessary and foundational for all elements of national power. And so it'll be interesting to see how the Department of Defense maneuvers through that, through the rest of their policy documentation and formulation. Moving on to the second part of of what happened this week, we had the first National Space Council convened by the vice president. And the lead topic for the Biden administration's inaugural meeting was all about securing the space domain. But the emphasis was on, and I'm quoting the vice president, how we modernize the norms and rules that govern space. Now, that's certainly good. and, And there's been a lot of praise. But is it actually enough, especially in light of what's been happening just recently, like with the Russian ASAT test? Yeah. So first, I think that the entire space ecosystem was pleased that the National Space Council had their inaugural meeting at the level of participation, certainly at maintaining Vice President Harris as the head of that council. There was a lot of early speculation in the administration uh, that the National Space Council was going to go away or that it would be significantly descoped or reshifted in its emphasis. And I think what you ended up seeing in the National Space Council was what you see in a lot of space policy discussion, which is a tremendous amount of continuity. You know, looking at challenges through different lenses, um, certainly for Vice President Harris, the emphasis on STEM as a foundation. I was very pleased to see how forward-leaning she and the administration are in increasing diversity and inclusion in STEM. I think that's something that's been needed in the STEM community and specifically in the aerospace community for a long time, Uh, not only looking at diversity and inclusion across um, demographic lines, but also looking at diversity and inclusion of LGBT communities, um, other underrepresented communities, and diversity of uh, approach and background. And I think that sort of gets to where the vice president ended up on this quote of kind of modernizing norms and and rules that govern space. I mean, I think what she's trying to do here is really thread the needle between not wanting to sound too militaristic and still wanting to make clear that we believe in international norms and, you know, in international order to be able to preserve the sustainability of the space environment. And so do I think it's enough? I don't. Do I think it's a good start? I do. Do I think that the devil will be in the details and that what was really interesting about, quite frankly, the kind of staffing and how the National Space Council kind of evolved over the past couple of weeks became really evident is that The vice president very early on had said that she wanted to reemphasize kind of climate change and STEM education and, you know, how space contributes to our economic security. And I think what we saw in the past, you know, since the Chinese ASAT and the Russian ASAT tests most recently is that our strategic competitors get a vote in that agenda. So the documentation that came out supporting and laying out kind of the general framework for the National Space Council, I think was very much reflective of the kind of previous desire to have this emphasis kind of subtly shift 
I think what you saw is when they got to the podium, they had to recognize that there were significant changes made to the space environment because of the irresponsible actions of Russia and China. And they had to acknowledge that. So their talking points ended up kind of shifting more towards that space security um, and then trying to strike that balance of where they wanted to be previous to this. And the reality of where they ended up, I think, is where you see the tension that allows this discussion about normative, consensual, rule-based behavior in space really start to carve its place into the discourse. And I'm saving the most interesting for last, which goes right into our discussion just now about ASATs. I mean, Kath Hicks said, quote, we would like to see all nations agree to refrain from anti-satellite weapons testing that creates debris. Now, this is interesting for a number of reasons. First, it's usually the DOD that wants freedom of action to do basically whatever they want, whether it's you know just a straightforward operation to blow things up or to test things, right, when it wants. And the Ottawa Convention, which is the anti-personnel landmine treaty, is an example of this. The United States is not a signatory to it. It's also the Department of State, if not the executive branch, that usually says stuff like this. This doesn't come out of the Department of Defense. And thirdly, it begs the question of just how far the U.S. government is willing to go in negotiating, because any sort of agreement, which would have to be done with what Russia, China, India, um, at the very least, possibly even Iran, how would that even work? I mean, she was talking, you know, and is she talking about nice to have guidelines, which are nice, but then just not followed, have no teeth? Or is she talking about no kidding binding agreement? Or or was she even just going off script? I mean, I found it perplexing and also positive at the same time, if that makes any sense. Sometimes the uh, the best things in life are both perplexing and positive. Look, Dr. Hicks, DepSec Dev Hicks, is a strategist and a keen strategist at at heart. I do not believe that this is an area where she would have gone off script. Um, I've actually uh, worked for and with Kath before. She is terribly accurate in hitting her talking points, and she is terribly well-staffed. So um, I do not think that this was a mistake. I do not think that this was uh, her going off off script. I think that you're right. The DoD has typically and will continue to value its freedom of action. And quite frankly, they have said in in recent years that they value their freedom of action in space. There is no doubt, though, that within the space domain, actions of one have consequences for all. And the DoD has recognized that as well. And so um, over the past mm, probably three to four years, what we've seen is increasing talk about how to make sure that there is the avoidance of creation of long-term debris. The absence of the word kind of long-lived debris is kind of interesting in this context. It's going to get super nerdy and policy wonky on there, talking about how long that space debris is actually up there based on the laws of physics, based on the trajectory, based off of how the uh, intercept actually occurs There are pieces of debris that will be up there for longer, and there are pieces of debris that will come down pretty quickly. The blanket statement of, you know, we'd like to see all nations agree to refrain from anti-satellite weapons testing that creates debris is kind of an interesting nuance to think about there. 
there's also, I mean, we can't deny that there have been international movements that have tried to have legally binding treaties against the placement of weapons in outer space. Those are, quite frankly and ironically, spearheaded by Russia and China in uh, a couple of different United Nations bodies. When you read the text of those, quite frankly, they're not verifiable. There's no clear international legally accepted definition of what an actual space weapon is. The Outer Space Treaty does not actually define what a space weapon is. And so I think this is going to be another lens through which strategic international competition is going to be had. So how far is the U.S. government willing to be able to go in negotiations? I think that the U.S. government has, quite frankly, across multiple administrations, has tried in good faith to have conversations not only with Russia and China on this in respective security dialogues, but um, quite frankly, with the rest of the international community and the emerging kind of space new entrance globally, which I think will have real impact for how this international narrative shapes. I think in the end, they will be voluntary guidelines that are based off of technical sound best practices. I think that at this point, industry and academia should have a play in shaping what those technical and operational guidelines look like, because we are at a point where the largest owner and operator of satellites is not the U.S. Department of Defense, but is actually a private company. And so I think they need to have a seat at the table. And I think that we also need to make sure that countries like Brazil and South Africa, Japan, Korea, uh, that have industrial bases that are interested in growing into space in a more tangible way also need to be able to figure out and support lines of effort that make sure that the sustainability of the space environment and the freedom of action that we maintain in and through space is not only for the purview of the United States Department of Defense, but is also for the global good. Thank you very much for your time, Sarah. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. Love nerding out with y'all. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of The Downlink. Before I go, I'd like to thank Vago Maradian, the Defense and Aerospace Reports editor, and Chris Cervello, the producer for all the Deaf Air Report podcasts. You can subscribe to The Downlink on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.